we all have a chance to come and meet you. Unless everyone comes, then maybe not. But, you know, um, I've had a chance to meet a few people, get a few names wrong, and ask once again. You'll probably hear, remind me of your name, uh, many times coming out of my mouth. But hopefully, eventually, I will get it. As Yunji said, uh, we are looking at Second Peter. Second Peter. And we're kicking off this week with the letter itself, as you heard from the uh, Bible reading. And it's in a series called The Unbearable Darkness of Doubt. And you'll see the, uh, the artwork on the screen behind me. And you might be wondering, why is this series called The Unbearable Darkness of Doubt? might be looking at the picture and thinking, well, it is really dark. It's really unbearable. Um, there's a thread that runs throughout this whole letter, which seems to point to the presence of doubt among the community that's writing or that's reading this letter. You know, whether this doubt comes from being led astray by false teachers that exist around them, or from simply their forgetfulness of the good news of Jesus Christ. And this doubt, no doubt, it can be crushing to those who are living in a culture that's hostile towards Christianity. I think in this, we can find some common ground with the recipients of this letter, um, as many of us also may face questions of doubt surrounded by this culture that's increasingly hostile towards our faith and the darkness of our own hearts as well. And so hopefully, um, this letter will help to I guess, alleviate a lot of the doubt that exists in our hearts. And I, I know that this doubt can multiply as well as you kind of go through um, life without community or life separated from community somewhat. So once again, those who are involved in graphics and creative, in creative ministry, they collaborated to bring our sermon series artwork to you, as you see. Um, I think some of us might be more visually inclined uh, when it comes to communication, when it comes to learning, and hopefully you'll get a lot from this artwork. Um, the end result comes after a lot of reading, a lot of prayer, meditation, uh, discussion together, and so hopefully you'll be blessed by it. As you look at the design, think about what's being communicated by it. Think about what's being communicated to you by it, and even talk to some members of creative about it, you know, what you're getting, you know, really encourage them. Um, talk to one another about it as well, and I pray it's all a blessing to you as well. Um, today, what we're going to focus on, we're going to look at a couple of the big themes. We're going to actually introduce a couple of the big themes that run through this letter, and we'll read together the introductory greeting in the first couple of verses. And so, by the end of this message, you might actually feel a little bit like, hmm, like, I want more. Like, you might feel that. Maybe you won't. You know, hopefully you will. Um, but if you do feel that, you know, know that it is by design. And it is just the first two verses of this letter. So I do highly recommend that as you go away from this sermon, you meditate on it, you read through the rest of the letter of Second Peter, and talk to people around you about it as well, about what you got from it and what you feel like it's introducing, where you feel like it's headed. Um, with that in mind, why don't I pray for us, and then we'll get into the message itself. Father God, we want to turn to you in this time, and we really want to uh, seek you as we cry out to you, God. We wait patiently for you, God, and you incline to us, and you hear our cry. Thank you, Lord, 
that you lift us up from the mud, the miry clay, and you put our feet on the solid foundation of the rock Jesus Christ, that we can find our lives embedded in this solid foundation, that we might not be shaken again, that we might seek you. We think and we pray for especially those that have done it tough during this lockdown, during uh, coronavirus, and indeed during this last season um, when community was apart. We pray, Lord, for those whose hearts are hurting, whose hearts really desire to be connected to the community, to be connected to you indeed. And we bring them forth before you and we ask that you would meet them where they're at, that you would touch their hearts, touch our hearts. Help us, Lord, to be hospitable. Help us, Lord, to bring people in and to love one another the way that you love us. May we have the firm foundation of the love of Jesus Christ in our hearts. If we're not sure about who we are, would you make that sure in our hearts as you remind us by telling us again who we are in you? Be with us, God. Open up our ears that we might hear you and open up our hearts that we might receive the message that you have for us today. Be with us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So as Yunji mentioned, uh, last week we took a, a look at some of the rites of passage that this guy Simon Peter went through in his life, you know, in his lifetime. So we got to see a little bit about his first meeting with Jesus, his denial of the Lord, and also him being reinstated by this charcoal fire. I mentioned really briefly as well that Peter eventually dies. Uh, martyred for the name of Jesus. We know that he dies, right? And this is, you know, a long time ago, thousands of years old. But he actually does get martyred uh, for the name of Jesus, and he no longer denies him. And this letter in particular, 2 Peter, comes possibly only a few years before this death, before his death by martyrdom. 2 Peter, it's written to this group of people that doesn't actually get identified. It's not as simple as the letter to the Romans, which, as you can guess, is to the church in Rome. It's not like the letter to New Life, for example, which would be very easy to identify. It's not like Galatians, which is written to the church in Galatia. But what we do know about the letter is we know why he's writing this letter, the purpose of his letter. And it seems as though there are some teachers that have come in to this group. They're making their home among this group. And they're teaching them, hey, it's okay to live your life and just walk a different path from the one of Jesus. It's okay. You can do that. These false teachers are whispering these things in their ears. And Peter is writing to warn them about these teachers who are clouding them with doubt about the way that they live. Now, what do we actually know about the people receiving this letter? And we do know a few things. We know that they seem to be really at home in the culture that they live in, in this Greco-Roman culture, okay? So they're in this place where Rome has obviously come and conquered the land, and Rome has basically made a culture and said, follow us. They seem to be really at home in it, the culture that surrounds them. Peter doesn't seem to really expect them to be familiar with Jewish literature, which is a bit strange because you'll notice that he actually identifies himself as Simeon Peter here, okay? And Simeon is more of a, a Jewish rendering of that uh, name, Simon. It'd be like if 
you know, Paul was talking to the Korean congregation. He might, he might introduce himself as Paul, okay, like the more Korean uh, rendering of that name, Paul. And yet, he doesn't expect them to be familiar with Jewish literature, kind of like us with Korean culture. You know, we're more the second generation. We don't really know a whole lot about Korea, perhaps. There's very few references to the Bible in 2 Peter, um, to scripture. Perhaps as well, this is actually at the core of why doubt is so big in this community, why it's so crushing for those that are receiving this letter. They're not that familiar with scripture. Without the Bible as their firm foundation, and obviously with how familiar they are with their surrounding culture, they're kind of like a house that's built on sand. They're kind of like a wave that's tossed to and fro by any sort of doctrine that comes in. So anything that comes, they might be thinking, well, that sounds reasonable. Like, I've never heard that before, and I don't have anything to guide me otherwise. Maybe that's true. Maybe in this as well, we might find our own hearts. You know, if we're not super familiar with the Bible, we might hear any sort of new teaching, and we might think, sounds reasonable. They're saying Jesus, probably know what they're talking about. And so it's really important that we get a firm foundation in the Bible. Now, throughout the letter of 2 Peter, the writer deals very strongly with these false teachers. So this becomes a really, really major theme all throughout this letter. So the false teachers, they reject living in holiness by Christian standards because they believe that the second coming of Jesus, when Jesus comes back and thus the final judgment, not going to happen. They believe that it's not going to happen. And so in this, they're seeking to lead other people astray as well. We're going to look specifically at their teaching when we get to that portion of Scripture. But generally speaking, their teaching is derived from Epicurean thought. Okay? I don't know if you've heard of Epicurean or Epicurious, uh, which basically means that they sought pleasure as the main goal in life pleasure as the main goal in life, and they achieved this by avoiding pain wherever they could, avoiding fear, avoiding suffering, all of that stuff, like we got to get as far away from it as possible. Tell me if this sounds familiar, okay? Tell me if this sounds familiar. Epicurean thought believed the world is made by random chance. God providing for us would destroy our freedom, our free will, and therefore, God must not provide or be involved with the world. And if the world came about by chance, then these things called prophecy, they can't exist. How can you say that something's going to happen if it's all by chance? And so prophecy that's been made cannot be fulfilled except randomly. Like, oh, he got it right because randomly it happened that way. And that basically the bad of this world the injustices, the evils that they see in day-to-day -day life prove that there can't be a God who provides. This is Epicurean thought. Now, the funny thing about culture is it tends to bleed together until two separate cultures, they become really hard to distinguish. Okay, so some believers at this time, they started mixing in some Epicurean thought with their beliefs. I don't know if you can see this on the screen. It's a little bit small, right? 
Basically, some believers also started uh, thinking as well, you know what, I think they're right. Like, God doesn't intervene in this world. He might have made this world, but he doesn't come and actually do stuff in this world anymore. And if that's the case, there's no reward for good. There's no punishment for being bad. They're thinking this way. And if that's the case, there's no resurrection from the dead. And if that's the case, there's no final judgment to come. And you can see where this line of thinking is going, okay? As you follow that line more and more, there is this feeling that God providing, it should cause the righteous people of this world to prosper and the wicked to suffer. Like, that just kind of makes sense, right? Like, if you think about along this logic, God providing, well, of course, the wicked should not prosper. And yet they look around and they see, hang on a second, that guy's wicked and he's prospering. Perhaps if they were more familiar with scripture, especially the books of Proverbs, Job, Ecclesiastes, perhaps that would have given them maybe a bigger picture, a more cosmic perspective and new categories for thinking. And if you yourself find yourself stumbled by some of these things in the world, when you see the wicked prosper, when you see the good suffer, when you see yourself suffer, I do recommend you read these books, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, and Job. All that aside, all of this makes Second Peter very timely for us today. Epicurean thought still exists and is quite prevalent in today's society. So many people still believe this. Many people still teach that the main purpose of human life is to seek pleasure and that the consequences of this life are going to die with our physical bodies. Many people still believe this. Perhaps you yourself rub up against this idea as well. There's also plenty of deviant philosophical thought when it comes to our faith because we've unknowingly let a lot of culture bleed in to Christianity. So things that are passed down purely through tradition or popular cultural thought instead of living upon faith in Christ and knowledge of his word. And these are the things that Second Peter seeks to tackle. Many of us tend to kind of float through life Okay, like maybe you can kind of self-assess here and think, do I actually walk intentionally in life or do I just kind of float in life and say, oh, wherever I end up is wherever I end up. Our Christian walks, sometimes, if it feels a little bit like we're not getting anywhere, we might think we're just treading water. Okay, like have you ever swum and you're treading water, right? And you're not getting anywhere. You're just staying in one place. You're getting a little tired, staying in one place. But one of the easiest ways to grow in faith is given to us. It's to read the word of God that's given to us in the Bible. And yet we place it aside and we think, it's okay, I'll come back to it later, back in the same place that I'm currently at now. And we think, I'm stagnant. I'm just staying in one place. But the reality is far more terrifying, if you really think about it, because we'd only be stagnant in this life if life remained tranquil, like still waters. If life wasn't rushing at you, the reality is it's a rushing torrent of all sorts of mixed beliefs in this life, whether it's popular culture, 
and the many various teachings that come from it. For me personally growing up, I know that a lot of uh, what I grew up learning, Hollywood, pop culture was my main teacher when it came to things like love and romance and happily ever after and, and Valentine's Day and all that stuff, right? It skewed my expectations and desires to thinking, man, finding a partner in this life, that's the most important goal in life. Because I would see all these movies, you know? The guy gets the girl, happily ever after, and the movie ends, and you're like, ah, that's my life. Roll credits, you know, that's where I want to get to. Like, what's the media that you consume discipling you towards? Because we all get discipled in this life. We're all following something in this life. Maybe it's traditional thought. As part of a majority Korean heritage here, some of us hold to very traditional norms from 30, 40 years ago of this honor, shame, you know, due to our parents and our grandparents. And so because of this, we don't even realize it, but we never leave guilt in the past. Like we talk about Jesus, he took all of our sin and shame, and then we live in shame anyway. We think, yeah, he took it all, but there's still a little bit. There's still a little bit inside my heart. Others of us, okay, maybe you can assess yourself. Others of us have become more modernized, and we're like, man, that's old. Like, I don't live that way. I'm more westernized. I'm more Australian. But that also leads to something else, where we look for self-actualization as the goal, where we think, you know, as we acquire more, as we get more material wealth, as we get more recognition for our achievements, that's the end goal in life. You know, once I'm called Dr. Kim, then I'll be okay. Or once I have a house with five rooms, then I'll be okay. And we think in that, that direction. Whatever the case, we have to recognize that without a solid, firm foundation in the Bible and faith, we're less like treading water and we're more like driftwood. This is one of my favorite images to think about, driftwood. You guys ever hear of driftwood? It looks like this, okay? So driftwood is basically the remains of trees that fall into the river, fall into the ocean, and then it just gets thrown around. You know, what do trees and branches do when they fall into water? They flow. So it gets shaped just by the natural erosion that occurs by the current, by the waves, and then at the end of it, it becomes impossible to actually find out where is the original piece of wood that this is from? What is the original tree that this is from? Because it's shaped so differently, it's eroded. What tree is that from? It looks like ginseng, like we don't know. It just looks like anything. Like driftwood, unless we remain in the vine, we're like branches that are broken off and shaped by rivers and waves of culture, tradition, all sorts of belief systems, and then, even if we call ourselves Christian, at the end of it, it'll become impossible to actually recognize the vine at the very end. 
having said all this, it probably makes a lot of sense to look at the scripture today. So the couple of short verses that serve as a greeting in the letter. Now, unfortunately, within our modern Christian culture, we sometimes get into this mode of skim reading. We're just kind of glazing over when it comes to certain Christian th- terminology. Like we see faith and we're like, oh, yeah, I know about faith, let's move on. We see gospel and we're like, yeah, I heard that. Okay, let's keep going. There's no TLDR here. Like, let's diligently look at the verses that are here in front of us. Uh, let's look with intentionality at what these verses have to say to us today. Okay, so let's start with the first verse. Simeon Peter, a servant and an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who have received a faith equal to ours through the righteousness of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. By this point in his life, Peter has been through some, some things. He's seen some stuff going on in his life. So you saw last week how he placed everything aside and sacrificed a lot of things in order to follow after Jesus. He was married, he had a fishing business, owned a boat apparently, put it all aside to follow after Jesus. You saw also his worst moments as he denied Jesus. And then you witnessed his reinstatement by Jesus by that charcoal fire. Now since that time, he's become a bold preacher. He's been imprisoned for that, for preaching the gospel, book of Acts. He's been freed by God's mighty hand from prison. He's seen people around him die for the gospel, sometimes not for the gospel. He's seen people get healed. He's been publicly rebuked as well by another apostle for his part in perpetuating racial segregation. And he's led a lot of people to come to know this great savior. And yet, from the very first line of the greeting of this letter, you can see what's most important. You can see what's remaining with him to this day as the core of his identity. He's not saying Peter, the bold preacher. He's not saying, you know, the, whatever else might come to mind, but he says, Simon Peter, a servant and an apostle of Jesus Christ. He's a servant, as Jesus was to Peter, as Jesus himself was to Peter. The memory of Jesus like a lowly slave dressed like a lowly slave, washing his feet, is still fresh in Peter's mind, just like it was yesterday, even though it's nearly the end of Peter's life now. And now Peter can also say, if my Lord was a servant to me, I'm also a servant in the house of God, and you're a servant as well. He's an apostle. He's sent on a mission by Jesus for the sake of his name. So the reinstatement by Jesus by that charcoal fire reconfirmed something, reignited something in Peter's heart. He remembers, Jesus has entrusted his precious sheep to me, to my care. And so Peter actually finds his authority as an apostle, not in his own good work, not in his own good preaching, not in his healing, but in the fact that he belongs, body and soul, in life and death, to Jesus Christ, his Lord. He's an apostle of Jesus. 
even in his name. He'll never live apart from the new name that was given by Jesus. He's no longer just Simon. He's Simon Peter, the rock. Even when he doesn't act like it, even when he doesn't feel like it, as long as his love and his devotion to Christ continues to help him to seek him, to seek greater holiness in him, he remains the rock. Can you in the same way recall at all times what Jesus says of you? Who Jesus says that you are? This is your identity. It's my prayer for you today that your identity in Jesus actually becomes really fundamental to what you believe about yourself. Not about tradition, not about achievement, but about what Jesus says about you. I think a lot of the time we can be pretty down on ourselves, right? It's usually at this point, middle of February, that things start feeling a little bit similar to previous years. Am I right? Like, if you've made any New Year's resolutions, I don't know if people still do this or if this is just an old person thing, but New Year's resolutions, they might not be going the way that you've planned. Diet's out the window, you know, maybe you've picked up the ciggies again, you know, whatever it might be, and it's only the second month of the year, and it's already like, oh, I'm back. This feels like 2020, please. No COVID-20. Like we might feel weighed down by a great deal of doubt as we begin this year, as we continue on through this year. Not just about our faith, but even about who we are, how we live this Christian life. We might feel doubt. But Peter, in writing this letter, when you read this, he doesn't see us in that way. He addresses his readers here. To those who have received a faith equal to ours through the righteousness of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. A faith equal to ours. He places his readers on the same level as himself, an apostle of Jesus Christ, as the other apostles, telling them, you guys are believers? We've been given a common faith. We're on the same level. We have a faith equal. See, at this point, if you're feeling a little bit of doubt about that, see, the unbelieving heart will take that and will just be like, come on, yeah, right. Have you seen me? Me on the same level as the apostles? My faith? But the gap between us and the apostles, one of the apostles, is so much closer than the gap between humanity and Jesus. The separation that was bridged by that cross. This would be absolutely impossible for us to believe if we're filled with pride. See, insecurity, false humility, two sides of the same coin, right? They mask the fact that we still believe that faith is our own. That faith is our work. You know, we build up faith. We do this. These two are so wrapped in pride because they come from this workspace mentality of our human minds. We want to deserve it. We want to reject whatever we feel like we haven't earned by our own merit. 
We don't want to feel like we're in need. And so when we're, t- when we're told faith is a gift that's been given to us, we're like, I don't know about that. We refuse to believe deep down in our hearts that without Jesus, we're wretched, we're pitiful, we're poor, we're, pl- we're blind, we're naked. We have nothing. But if what Peter is saying here is true, we've been given a faith equal to the apostles. Again, not because of something that we did to deserve it, but this faith is granted through the righteousness of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. This is gonna be a big thread that runs through the rest of the letter. As you read through 2 Peter, highly recommend, highlight or underline each time you see the word righteousness. It'll help you to kind of see the thread that goes through. You'll see a marked difference as well between the faith that's given to us by our God, which is marked by righteousness, and the faith that the false teachers are pushing, that are telling you about. This gift of faith is righteously, justly given by God with fairness and without favoritism. He's not saying, here you go, Peter, you're an apostle, so you have this amount of faith. Here you go, young, you get this amount of faith. You're a pastor as well, you can have a little bit more. He doesn't say that. He says, everyone, you have faith. Now, at the time of writing, there were all sorts of other saviors and gods, whether in other religions around the people that Peter's writing to, or the Roman emperor, Caesar, You might recall us talking about this in our three-week series in Philippians a little while back. You know, if not, you can have a look at that as well. These other saviors are calling out to the readers. These cultists, these temples would entice them. Come, our God will protect your business. You have business interests, don't you? Come. Or come and worship this God. This God will help you to bear many children. Also a bit of a business interest. Or come and worship the emperor of our nation. Be on the side of the one who actually conquered us, conquered our nation, so that he might have favor on you. These are the different things that are calling out from all the spheres of society. And then there are the false saviors and gods that are a little bit trickier to pin down. These are the quiet things that come. They burrow into our very way of life. They lead us in everything that we do, become functional saviors and gods for us. And these things still exist today. Look, if you want to know what the false functional savior or God is in your life, fill in the blank with me. If I had this, if I had blank, then my life would be complete. Then I'd be really happy. What's the first thing that comes to your mind? If I had marriage, if I had kids, if I had that job, if I had that house, if I had money, whatever it might be, that is your functional savior. But Jesus, Peter tells us, is the only God, the true savior who has given his readers and us as well faith equal to the apostles. It's not a pyramid scheme. It's not multi-level marketing, whatever you want to call it, that leads you to give more faith to the one above. 
And now we've all been put on this flat plane. And he's granted all of us eternal life if we actually take this faith and place it in him for the work that he accomplished at the cross where he took that punishment that was due to us for our sins upon himself. So he's paid the price for our sins and what he's given us access to in return for that faith that he's given us is eternal life. Like this, this is the best deal ever. He's given us the faith to place in him and the return on investment is eternal life. Like there's no risk. But Second Peter tells us throughout, implicitly and explicitly, that this faith is gonna come at some sort of cost in this life as well. There's gonna be conflict. You will face conflict as a Christian. You will. When it comes to the false gods and the saviors who seek to enslave us. There's gonna be persecution from the culture and the society around us that scorns our faith that says, why do you live that way? And there's gonna be hurt from those that can't comprehend why we wouldn't wanna be like everyone else, seek the same things as everyone else, find fleeting happiness in those things instead of talking about this lofty, eternal joy that we have in Jesus that is so imperceptible in the moment. But it's a price worth paying. The cost of discipline, the cost of bearing with conflict and, and the persecution that comes our way to maintain our faith, Jesus is worth it. The next verse, 2 Peter 1, 2 reads, May grace and peace be multiplied to you through the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. So in fact, not only is the faith equal to that of the apostles recognized, but Peter's prayer for his readers is that there will be further grace and peace multiplied for them. So how is this going to happen? It says, through the knowledge of God and Jesus our Lord. How do you know something or someone? How do you know? Like I remember growing up reading a lot of books and I remember even in school, I'd flip back to the glossary. I'd be reading all these books and learning new words. I'd be like, oh, okay, yeah, this word looks interesting. I like the spelling of it. I, I liked how it looked. The problem was, even as I learned this word, even as I learned what it meant, I'd never heard it before. It was just words on a page. And so I didn't know how to pronounce these words. And still, I'd use these words in class. I'd use it in conversation, which is very awkward. I'd mispronounce them. I'd leave it up to the, uh, the listener to try to figure out, the heck is this guy talking about? Is this intellectual knowledge truly knowing these new words? Is that what knowing is? What about this past month and a little bit, as you've had me as your pastor for that time, some of you have come and met me, I've come and met some of you. Some of you have even told me a little bit about yourself. You know, I study science. Science seems to be the big thing. You know, some sort of science, data science, all sorts of science. Is this personal knowledge enough to say that I know you? 
Like, if I know what you study, is that knowing you? Sometimes we say that we know God when we don't really live in this knowledge of God. Like, we can intellectually know him when we hear about him on a Sunday, when we read his words in our scripture. We might even have a little bit of personal knowledge about him and say that we've experienced his presence. Maybe you felt it on a Sunday, like today, when you hear the praise team singing and you're like, I know these words and I know that I can feel his presence around me. And don't let me downplay any of that. It's good. But all knowledge of God has to, has to, has to essentially at the core change the nature of our living. If it doesn't, it's not true knowledge. The knowledge that Peter is talking about, that he's going to continue to point out in this letter, it's so crucial because it's this type of knowledge that grace and peace, it's through this type of knowledge that grace and peace are going to come and multiply in our hearts, the kind that changes the way that we live. A few weeks ago, I was driving into church here And it was pretty early, and so I must have been going a little bit faster than usual, you know, through the church parking lot. Now, there's no one around. You know, Boris sitting in the passenger seat, and I'm just weaving through. I'm not doing like 90, okay? But like, I'm doing a little bit more than I should be. And then after service finishes, one of the Hezen volunteers, he's in a little green vest, perhaps you've seen him, parking attendant, He flags me down. He's like, Pastor, please drive more slowly in the parking lot. I was like, where were you? He's like hiding behind a car or something. He reminded me of what the speed limit is in the parking lot, in that shared parking area. And I was like, okay. And then he also reminded me there are many small children as as there's like 900 of them apparently. And he said, Although I might not see anyone around, God forbid a small child might pop out from behind a car, just scramble out for whatever reason. Which is probably true, given that I didn't see this big, tall volunteer. So apparently, you know, maybe I would hopefully not hit a car, uh, hit a person. If today after service, though, I left, and then again, I drove faster than the speed limit, doing 30 around the parking lot. I'm like, oh, whatever. What would happen if I struck a child or a volunteer or whatever with my car going faster than the speed limit and I lowered my window and that parking attendant is looking at me, shaking his head? Can I look him in the eye and say, I know the rules. You told me before. I see the sign. I know the rules. I'm not living this knowledge. I don't know the rules. I've just read it. Peter clearly thinks very highly of this knowledge that he would pray grace and peace through it. He continues to refer back to this knowledge, this knowledge that results in ethical living for the sake of Christ, that seeks the holiness of God, this knowledge that leads to commitment to God. This is going to become clearer. The picture that Peter paints is going to start becoming more vivid 
with the next verse and onwards, which we'll talk about next week, that picture that you see in the sermon series artwork, you know, I just love the way that it looks somewhat undeveloped or blurry. But as we go through the weeks, it'll start becoming clearer and clearer. We're going to look at one of the central themes of this letter next week, sharing in the divine nature of God. What does that mean? We'll find out next week. As we finish today, I encourage you, go, read 2 Peter. It's a very short letter. It'll probably take you, if you're an average speed reader, probably less than 15 minutes. If you're a slow reader, 20 minutes. If you like to read, you know, 40 times, maybe it'll take you a lot longer. As you read through it, note down the repeated terms and the phrases that Peter uses, because these are going to become more and more important for us to pick up on in the next few weeks. You know, write them down, underline them, highlight them, whatever you want to do. Okay, with that in mind, why don't I pray for us as we invite the praise team back up. Father, as we finish our time today, we want to turn to you and thank you for the gift of your son, for the gift of Calvary, which bridged that gap between humanity and you. That gap that we continually added to, that stretched onwards towards infinity. As we sought our own way, as we sought our own functional saviors rather than a holy God, you bridged that gap for us. And now you tell us we have a faith equal to that of the apostles. Lord, in this time as we turn to you in prayer, would you help us to turn away from our false functional gods and saviors and help us, Lord, to worship the one true God and Savior, Jesus Christ. And as we worship him, would you solidify in us that identity that we have in you? Who you tell us that we are, what you call us, that's who we want to be. That's what we want to know ourselves as. That's how we want to live. Help us, Lord, to grasp firmly without letting go and to be grasped indeed the grace and the peace that multiplies to us through your son Jesus through the knowledge of who you are which changes the way that we live may we hold to that truth be with us be gracious to us Help us, Lord, to be open with one another as we go from here, that we might be able to share in the things that we're reading in 2 Peter, in what you're saying to us, in the holiness that you've called us to. May we love you the way that you love us. In Jesus' name, amen.